Section 7 of Eureka, a prose poem by Edgar Allan Poe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Let us now, expanding our conceptions, look upon each of these systems as in itself an atom, which in fact it is, when we consider it as but one of the countless myriads of systems which constitute the universe. Regarding all, then, as but colossal atoms, each with the same ineradicable tendency to unity which characterizes the actual atoms of which it consists, we enter at once upon a new order of aggregations. The smaller systems, in the vicinity of a larger one, would inevitably be drawn into still closer vicinity. A thousand would assemble here, a million there, perhaps here again even a billion leaving thus immeasurable vacancies in space and if now it be demanded why in the case of these systems of these merely titanic atoms i speak simply of an assemblage and not as the case of the actual atoms of a more or less consolidated agglomeration if it be asked for instance why i do not carry what i suggest to its legitimate conclusion and describe at once these assemblages of system atoms as rushing to consolidation in spheres, as each becoming condensed into one magnificent sun, my reply is that Melanta Tauta, I am but pausing for a moment on the awful threshold of the future. For the present, calling these assemblages clusters, we see them in the incipient stages of their consolidation, their absolute consolidation is to come. We have now reached a point from which we behold the universe as a spherical space, interspersed, unequitably, with clusters. It will be noticed that I here prefer the adverb unequably to the phrase with a merely general equability employed before. It is evident, in fact, that the equability of distribution will diminish in the ratio of the agglomerative processes, that is to say, as the things distributed diminish in number. Thus the increase of inequability, an increase which must continue until, sooner or later, an epoch will arrive at which the largest agglomeration will absorb all the others, should be viewed as, simply, a corroborative indication of the tendency to one and here at length it seems proper to inquire whether the ascertained facts of astronomy confirm the general arrangement which i have thus deductively assigned to the heavens thoroughly they do telescopic observation guided by the laws of perspective enables us to understand that the perceptible universe exists as a cluster of clusters irregularly disposed the clusters of which this universal cluster of clusters consists are merely what we have been in the practice of designating nebula and of these nebula one is of paramount interest to mankind i allude to the galaxy or milky way this interests us first and foremost obviously on account of its great superiority in apparent size not only to any one other cluster in the firmament, but to all the other clusters taken together. The largest of these latter occupies a mere point comparatively, and is distinctly seen only with the aid of a telescope. The galaxy sweeps throughout the heaven, and is brilliantly visible to the naked eye, but it interests man chiefly, although less immediately, 
on account of its being his home the home of the earth on which he exists the home of the sun about which this earth revolves the home of that system of orbs which the sun is the center and primary the earth one of sixteen secondaries or planets the moon one of seventeen tertiaries or satellites the galaxy let me repeat is but one of the clusters which i have been describing but one of the miscalled nebula revealed to us by the telescope alone sometimes as faint hazy spots in various quarters of the sky we have no reason to suppose the milky way really more extensive than the least of these nebula its vast superiority in size is but an apparent superiority arising from our position in regard to it that is to say from our position in its midst however strange the assertion may at first appear to those unversed in astronomy still the astronomer himself has no hesitation in asserting that we are in the midst of that inconceivable host of stars of suns of systems which constitute the galaxy moreover not only have we not only has our sun a right to claim the galaxy as its own especial cluster but with slight reservation it may be said that all the distinctly visible stars of the firmament all the stars visible to the naked eye have equally a right to claim it as their own there has been a great deal of misconception in respect to the shape of the galaxy which in nearly all our astronomical treatises is said to resemble that of a capital y the cluster in question has in reality a certain general very general resemblance to the planet saturn with its encompassing triple ring instead of the solid orb of that planet however we must picture to ourselves a lenticular star island or collection of stars our sun lying eccentrically near the shore of the island on that side of it which is nearest the constellation of the cross and farthest from that of cassiopeia the surrounding ring where it approaches our position has in it a longitudinal gash which does in fact cause the ring in our vicinity to assume loosely the appearance of a capital y we must not fall into the error however of conceiving the somewhat indefinite girdle as at all remote comparatively speaking from the also indefinite lenticular cluster which it surrounds and thus for mere purpose of explanation we may speak of our sun as actually situated at the point of the y where its three component lines unite and conceiving this letter to be of a certain solidity of a certain thickness very trivial in comparison with its length we may even speak of our position as in the middle of this thickness fancying ourselves thus placed we shall no longer find difficulty in accounting for the phenomena presented which are perspective altogether when we look upward or downward that is to say when we cast our eyes in the direction of the letters thickness we look through fewer stars than we cast them in the direction of its length or along either of the three component lines of course in the former case the stars appear scattered in the latter crowded to reverse this explanation an inhabitant of the earth when looking as we commonly express ourselves at the galaxy is then beholding it in some of the directions of its length is looking along the lines of the y 
but when looking out into the general heaven he turns his eyes from the galaxy he is then surveying it in the direction of the letter's thickness and on this account the stars seem to him scattered while in fact they are as close together on an average as in the mass of the cluster no consideration could be better adapted to convey an idea of this cluster's stupendous extent if with a telescope of high space penetrating power we carefully inspect the firmament we shall become aware of a belt of clusters of what we have hitherto called nebula a band of varying breadth stretching from horizon to horizon at right angles to the general course of the milky way this band is the ultimate cluster of clusters this belt is the universe our galaxy is but one and perhaps one of the most inconsiderable of the clusters which go to the constitution of this ultimate universal belt or band the appearance of this cluster of clusters to our eyes as a belt or band is altogether a perspective phenomenon of the same character as that which causes us to behold our own individual and roughly spherical cluster the galaxy under guise also of a belt traversing the heavens at right angles to the universal one the shape of the all-inclusive cluster is of course generally that of each individual cluster which it includes just as the scattered stars which on looking from the galaxy we see in the general sky are in fact but a portion of that galaxy itself and as closely intermingled with it as any of the telescopic points in what seems the densest portion of its mass so are the scattered nebula which on casting our eyes from the universal belt we perceive at all points of the firmament so i say are these scattered nebula to be understood as only perspectively scattered and as part and parcel of the one supreme and universal sphere no astronomical fallacy is more untenable and none has been more pertinaciously adhered to than that of the absolute illimitation of the universe of stars the reasons for limitation as i have already assigned them a priori seem to me unanswerable but not to speak of these observation assures us that there is in numerous directions around us certainly if not in all a positive limit or at the very least affords us no basis whatever for thinking otherwise were the succession of stars endless then the background of the sky would present us a uniform luminosity like that displayed by the galaxy since there could be absolutely no point in all that background at which would not exist a star the only mode therefore in which under such a state of affairs we could comprehend the voids which our telescopes find in innumerable directions would be by supposing the distance of the invisible background so immense that no ray from it has yet been able to reach us at all that this may be so who shall venture to deny i maintain simply that we have not even the shadow of a reason for believing that it is so when speaking of the vulgar propensity to regard all bodies on the earth as tending merely to the earth's centre i observe that with certain exceptions to the specified hereafter every body on the earth tended not only to the earth's centre but in every conceivable direction besides 
the exceptions refer to those frequent gaps in the heavens where our utmost scrutiny can detect not only no stellar bodies but no indications of their existence where yawning chasms blacker than erebus seem to afford us glimpses through the boundary walls of the universe of stars into the illimitable universe of vacancy beyond now as any body existing on the earth chances to pass either through its own movement or the earth's into a line with any one of these voids or cosmical abysses it clearly is no longer attracted in the direction of that void and for the moment consequently is heavier than at any period either after or before independently of the consideration of these voids however and looking only at the generally unequable distribution of the stars we see that the absolute tendency of bodies on the earth to the earth's centre is in a state of perpetual variation we comprehend then the insulation of our universe we perceive the isolation of that of all that which we grasp with the senses we know that there exists one cluster of clusters a collection around which on all sides extend the immeasurable wilderness of a space to all human perception untenanted but because upon the confines of this universe of stars we are compelled to pause through want of farther evidence from the senses is it right to conclude that in fact there is no material point beyond that which we have thus been permitted to attain have we or have we not an analogical right to the inference that this perceptible universe that this cluster of clusters is but one of a series of clusters of clusters the rest of which are invisible through distance through the diffusion of their light being so excessive ere it reaches us as not to produce upon our retinas a light impression or from there being no such emanation as light at all in these unspeakably distant worlds or lastly from the mere interval being so vast that the electric tidings of their presence in space have not yet through the lapsing myriads of years been able to traverse that interval have we any right to inferences have we any ground whatever for visions such as these if we have a right to them in any degree we have a right to their infinite extension the human brain has obviously a leaning to the infinite and fondles the phantom of the idea it seems to long with a passionate fervor for this impossible conception with the hope of intellectually believing it when conceived what is general among the whole race of man of course no individual of that race can be warranted in considering abnormal nevertheless there may be a class of superior intelligences to whom the human bias alluded to may wear all the character of monomania my question however remains unanswered have we any right to infer let us say rather to imagine an interminable succession of the cluster of clusters or of universes more or less similar i reply that the right in a case such as this depends absolutely upon the hardihood of that imagination which ventures to claim the right let me declare only that as an individual i myself feel impelled to the fancy without daring to call it more that there does exist a limitless succession of universes more or less similar to that of which we have cognizance 
to that of which alone we shall ever have cognizance at the very least until the return of our own particular universe into unity if such clusters of clusters exist however and they do it is abundantly clear that having had no part in our origin they have no portion in our laws they neither attract us nor we them their material their spirit is not ours is not that which obtains in any part of our universe they could not impress our senses or our souls among them and us considering all for the moment collectively there are no influences in common each exists apart and independently in the bosom of its proper and particular god in the conduct of this discourse i am aiming less at physical than at metaphysical order the clearness with which even material phenomena are presented to the understanding depends very little i have long since learned to perceive upon a merely natural and almost altogether upon a moral arrangement if then i seem to step somewhat too discursively from point to point of my topic let me suggest that i do so in the hope of thus the better keeping unbroken that chain of graduated impression by which alone the intellect of man can expect to encompass the grandeurs of which i speak and in their majestic totality to comprehend them so far our attention has been directed almost exclusively to a general and relative grouping of the stellar bodies in space of specification there has been little and whatever ideas of quantity have been conveyed that is to say of number magnitude and distance have been conveyed incidentally and by way of preparation for more definitive conceptions these latter let us now attempt to entertain our solar system as has been already mentioned consists in chief of one sun and sixteen planets certainly but in all probability a few others revolving around it as a center and attended by seventeen moons of which we know with possibly several more of which as yet we know nothing these various bodies are not true spheres but oblate spheroids spheres flattened at the poles of the imaginary axes about which they rotate the flattening being a consequence of the rotation neither is the sun absolutely the center of the system for the sun itself with all the planets revolves about a perpetually shifting point of space which is the system's general center of gravity neither are we to consider the paths through which these different spheroids move the moons about the planets the planets about the sun or the sun about the common center as circles in an accurate sense they are in fact ellipses one of the foci being the point about which the revolution is made an ellipse is a curve returning into itself one of whose diameters is longer than the other in the longer diameter are two points equidistant from the middle of the line and so situated otherwise that if from each of them a straight line be drawn to any one point of the curve the two lines taken together will be equal to the longer diameter itself now let us conceive such an ellipse at one of the points mentioned which are the foci let us fasten an orange by an elastic thread let us connect this orange with a p and let us place this latter on the circumference of the ellipse 
let us now move the pea continuously around the orange keeping always on the circumference of the ellipse the elastic thread which of course varies in length as we move the pea will form what in geometry is called a radius vector now if the orange be understood as the sun and the pea as a planet revolving about it then the revolution should be made at such a rate with a velocity so varying that the radius vector may pass over equal areas of space in equal times the progress of the pea should be in other words the progress of the planet is of course slow in proportion to its distance from the sun swift in proportion to its proximity those planets moreover move the more slowly which are the farther from the sun the squares of their periods of revolution having the same proportion to each other as have to each other the cubes of their mean distances from the sun the wonderfully complex laws of revolution here described however are not to be understood as obtaining in our system alone they everywhere prevail where attraction prevails they control the universe every shining speck in the firmament is no doubt a luminous sun resembling our own at least in its general features and having in attendance upon it a greater or less number of planets greater or less whose still lingering luminosity is not sufficient to render them visible to us at so vast a distance but which nevertheless revolve moon attended about their starry centers in obedience to the principles just detailed in obedience to the three omniprevalent laws of revolution the three immortal laws guessed by the imaginative kepler and but subsequently demonstrated and accounted for by the patient and mathematical newton among a tribe of philosophers who pride themselves excessively upon matter-of-fact it is far too fashionable to sneer at all speculation under the comprehensive sobriquet guesswork the point to be considered is who guesses in guessing with plato we spend our time to better purpose now and then than in hearkening to a demonstration by alcmeon in many works on astronomy i find it distinctly stated that the laws of kepler are the basis of the great principle gravitation this idea must have arisen from the fact that the suggestion of these laws by kepler and his proving them a posteriori to have an actual existence led newton to account for them by his hypothesis of gravitation and finally to demonstrate them a priori as necessary consequences of the hypothetical principle thus so far from the laws of kepler being the basis of gravity gravity is the basis of these laws as it is indeed of all the laws of the material universe which are not referable to repulsion alone the mean distance of the earth from the moon that is to say from the heavenly body in our closest vicinity is two hundred and thirty seven thousand miles mercury the planet nearest the sun is distant from him thirty seven millions of miles venus the next revolves at a distance of sixty eight millions the earth which comes next at a distance of ninety five millions mars then at a distance of a hundred and forty four millions now comes the eight asteroids ceres juno vesta pallas astria flora iris and hebe at an average distance of about two hundred and fifty millions then we have jupiter distant four hundred and ninety millions then saturn nine hundred millions then uranus nineteen hundred millions 
finally neptune lately discovered and revolving at a distance say of twenty-eight hundred millions leaving neptune out of the account of which as yet we know little accurately and which is possibly one of a system of asteroids it will be seen that within certain limits there exists an order of interval among the planets speaking loosely we may say that each outer planet is twice as far from the sun as the next inner one may not the order here mentioned may not the law of bode be deduced from consideration of the analogy suggested by me as having place between the solar discharge of rings and the mode of the atomic irradiation the numbers hurriedly mentioned in this summary of distance it is folly to attempt comprehending unless in the light of abstract arithmetical facts they are not practically tangible ones they convey no precise ideas i have stated that neptune the planet farthest from the sun revolves about him at a distance of twenty eight hundred millions of miles so far so good i have stated a mathematical fact and without comprehending it in the least we may put it to use mathematically but in mentioning even that the moon revolves about the earth at the comparatively trifling distance of two hundred thirty seven thousand miles i entertain no expectation of giving any one to understand to know to feel how far from the earth the moon actually is two hundred and thirty seven thousand miles there are perhaps few of my readers who have not crossed the atlantic ocean yet how many of them have a distinct idea of even the three thousand miles intervening between shore and shore i doubt indeed whether the man lives who can force into his brain the most remote conception of the interval between one milestone and its next neighbor upon the turnpike we are in some measure aided however in our consideration of distance by combining this consideration with the kindred one of velocity sound passes through eleven hundred feet of space in a second of time now were it possible for an inhabitant of the earth to see the flash of a cannon discharged in the moon and to hear the report he would have to wait after perceiving the former more than thirteen entire days and nights before getting any intimation of the latter however feeble be the impression even thus conveyed of the moon's real distance from the earth it will nevertheless affect a good object in enabling us more clearly to see the futility of attempting to grasp such intervals as that of the twenty-eight hundred millions of miles between our sun and neptune or even that of the ninety-five millions between the sun and the earth we inhabit a cannon-ball flying at the greatest velocity with which such a ball has ever been known to fly could not traverse the latter interval in less than twenty years while for the former it would require five hundred and ninety our moon's real diameter is two thousand one hundred and sixty miles yet she is comparatively so trifling an object that it would take nearly fifty such orbs to compose one as great as the earth the diameter of our own globe is seven thousand nine hundred and twelve miles but from the enunciation of these numbers what positive idea do we derive if we ascend an ordinary mountain and look around us from its summit we behold a landscape stretching say forty miles in every direction forming a circle of two hundred and fifty miles in circumference 
and including an area of five thousand square miles the extent of such a process on account of the successiveness with which its proportions necessarily present themselves to view can be only very feebly and very partially appreciated yet the entire panorama would comprehend no more than one forty thousandth part of the mere surface of our globe were this panorama then to be succeeded after the lapse of an hour by another of equal extent this again by a third after the lapse of another hour this again by the fourth after the lapse of another hour and so on until the scenery of the whole earth were exhausted and were we to be engaged in examining these various panoramas for twelve hours every day we should nevertheless be nine years and forty-eight days in completing the general survey but if the mere surface of the earth eludes the grasp of imagination what are we to think of its cubical contents it embraces a mass of matter equal in weight to at least two sextillion two hundred quintillions of tons let us suppose it in a state of quiescence and now let us endeavor to conceive a mechanical force sufficient to set it in motion not the strength of all the myriads of beings whom we may conclude to inhabit the planetary worlds of our system not the combined physical strength of all these beings even admitting all to be more powerful than man would avail to stir the ponderous mass a single inch from its position what are we to understand then of the force which under similar circumstances would be required to move the largest of our planets jupiter this is eighty-six thousand miles in diameter and would include within its periphery more than a thousand orbs of the magnitude of our own yet this stupendous body is actually flying around the sun at a rate of twenty-nine thousand miles an hour that is to say with a velocity of forty times greater than that of a cannonball the thought of such a phenomenon cannot well be said to startle the mind it palsies and appalls it not unfrequently we ask our imagination in picturing the capacities of an angel let us fancy such a being at a distance of some hundred miles from jupiter a close eye witness of the planet as it speeds on its annual revolution now can we i demand fashion for ourselves any conception so distinct of this ideal being's spiritual exaltation as that involved in the supposition that even by this immeasurable mass of matter whirled immediately before his eyes with a velocity so unutterable he an angel angelic though he be is not at once struck into nothingness and overwhelmed at this point however it seems proper to suggest that in fact we have been speaking of comparative trifles our sun the central and controlling orb of the system to which jupiter belongs is not only greater than jupiter but greater by far than all the planets of the system taken together this fact is an essential condition indeed of the stability of the system itself the diameter of jupiter has been mentioned it is eighty six thousand miles that of the sun is eight hundred and eighty two thousand miles an inhabitant of the latter traveling ninety miles a day would be more than eighty years in going around a great circle of its circumference 
it occupies a cubical space of six hundred and eighty-one quadrillions four hundred and seventy-two trillions of miles the moon as has been stated revolves about the earth at a distance of two hundred and thirty-seven thousand miles in an orbit consequently of nearly a million and a half now were the sun placed upon the earth center over center the body of the former would extend in every direction not only to the line of the moon's orbit but beyond it a distance of two hundred thousand miles and here once again let me suggest that in fact we have still been speaking of comparative trifles the distance of the planet neptune from the sun has been stated it is twenty eight hundred millions of miles the circumference of its orbit therefore is about seventeen billions let this be borne in mind while we glance at some one of the brightest stars between this and the star of our system the sun there is a gulf of space to convey an idea of which we should need the tongue of an archangel from our system then and from our sun or the star the star at which we suppose ourselves glancing is a thing altogether apart still for the moment let us imagine it placed upon our sun center over center as we now imagine this sun itself placed upon the earth let us now conceive this particular star we have in mind extending in every direction beyond the orbit of mercury of venus of the earth still on beyond the orbit of mars beyond jupiter of uranus until finally we fancy it filling the circle seventeen billions of miles in circumference which is described by the revolution of leverrier's planet when we have conceived all this we shall have entertained no extravagant conception there is the very best reason for believing that many of the stars are even far larger than the one we have imagined i mean to say that we have the very best empirical basis for such belief and in looking back at the original atomic arrangements for diversity which have been assumed as a part of the divine plan in the constitution of the universe we shall be enabled easily to understand and to credit the existence of even far vaster disproportions in stellar size than any to which i have hitherto alluded the largest orbs of course we must expect to find rolling through the widest vacancies of space i remarked just now that to convey an idea of the interval between our sun and any one of the other stars we should require the eloquence of an archangel in so saying i should not be accused of exaggeration for in simple truth these are topics on which it is scarcely possible to exaggerate but let us bring the matter more distinctly before the eye of the mind End of section seven.